to put the Psalm uh, number 10 uh, into context in a very unusual way this morning, uh, we, have, we are delighted to have Reverend Larry Martin uh, preaching from the Christ Church of Pulpit. Larry Martin serves International Justice Mission as the Senior Vice President of Education and Dean of the International Justice Mission Institute. IJM is a human rights agency that secures justice for victims of slavery, sexual exploitation, and other forms of violent oppression. IJM lawyers, investigators, and aftercare professionals work with local governments to ensure victim rescue, to prosecute perpetrators, and to strengthen the community and civic factors that promote functioning public justice systems. Reverend Martin received his B.S. from Fresno State, a master's from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a master's of divinity from American Baptist Seminary of the West. Reverend Martin is an ordained Baptist minister. Prior to working with IJM, Reverend Martin served 16 years on the staff of Young Life in Northern California and Colorado, eight years as a Baptist pastor, and four years as a denominational executive. Ladies and gentlemen, members of the congregation, would you please join me in welcoming to the pulpit of Christ Church, Reverend Larry Martin. Would you join me in prayer? Kind Father in heaven, you tell us in your word that you reward those who believe you exist and who earnestly seek you. And together, Lord, we have come to this place to profess our faith in you as the one who saves and put our faith and trust together in you. And in these moments we have together this morning, Lord, we would ask that as we seek you, you would reward us by letting your holy word penetrate our hearts to actually take root, flourish, and bear fruit so that the world would know your goodness so that your church would be strengthened and you would be glorified in the name of our brother and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me begin by posing a question to all of you that I find is important to always keep asking myself. And it's simply this. Are Jesus and I actually interested in the same things? Does my heart beat fast for the same things that my heavenly Father's heart beats fast for? Am I passionate about the same things that he is passionate about? Or have we developed one of those sort of stale romances, you know, where he has his things and I have mine? Or on the other hand, could the world out there 
tell what really matters to my God just by looking at the way I live my life. So I ask myself, what is God passionate about? And do I share those passions? And I know what I'm passionate about, but if I put that aside for a second and ask what makes our God's heart beat fast, what would those things be? And today I want to focus on two. Two of what I think sometimes are the more unfamiliar passions of God. And they simply are, first, his passion for the world, and secondly, his passion for justice. Now, it might seem odd for me to say, when we're focusing on being world changers, that I would say that the world is an unfamiliar passion. But what I want you to get about this is the nature of the world that God is passionate about. Because it turns out that the world that God loves so, that makes his heart beat fast all the time, is this great, big, messy, and broken world out there. With all of its dizzying disorder, all of these confusing cultures, these bazillions of people who speak all these languages, we don't understand. This is the world that God so loves. This great, big, broken, and messy world out there. But isn't this also sometimes the same world that causes us to want to pick up the television remote when we're watching the news and change the channel? Because it is a little bit overwhelming. But make no mistake, Scripture tells us that this is the world that caused God to stretch out his arms and love on a cross for because he loved it so much. Now, what, on the other hand, am I passionate about? What takes up my energy and focus and concern every day? Well, it turns out, it's me. I love me. I'm fascinated with me. This morning when I woke up, I didn't have to remind myself, Larry, think of yourself. Just came rather naturally. Now, fortunately, I have a good pastor like you, and he will talk to me about this. And he'll say, Larry, you need to learn to grow out the boundaries of your heart to extend more love and care for others. So I can report to you on a really good day, I can actually do that with all the people in my immediate family, my wife and my two kids and my grandsons, and they'll tell you that this is a good day in the Martin house, and they'll probably even circle it on the calendar and pray it comes around again next year sometime. Or maybe I have this larger spiritual experience and I really feel my heart begin to expand so that I can share love and care and compassion to all those people in the world who I like and who like me and who are like me. And you see, at the end of the day, this becomes my world of energy, of focus and concern. But I have to admit It's a rather shrunken and shriveled little world of me and mine. Now, I think the good news for all of us, particularly for me, is that we have a Heavenly Father who finds this rather understandable and natural. But just because something's understandable and natural doesn't mean that it's necessarily godly. So perhaps today, at least, we could agree on this one goal— that God wants to grow us to have hearts that are more like his, that care about this great, big, messy, and broken world out there. But let me ask you this. 
as we go out, as we're called to do, into this world that God so loves, what do you think the world out there finds hardest to believe about our Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good. Now, why are they having a hard time believing that God is good? Because there is just so much pain and suffering out there. Remember that question that our psalm started off with, a really haunting question. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see, the world's not wondering if there's a God. They're just in a world of hurt, and they're wondering if God is paying any attention to their suffering. They're having a hard time believing he's good. You've heard numbers like this, no doubt, before, but today, 25,000 children in our world will just die because their parents can't give them enough nutrition, and they're having a hard time believing God is good. There are 1.5 billion people in our world who have absolutely no access to medical care. They're not arguing about whether their medical plan allows them to choose their primary care physician. They just don't get a doctor. Or what about the millions of children in our urban centers around the world who each day wake up sleeping on the streets, not knowing where their next meal will come from or where they'll sleep that night or who will abuse them next. And they're having a hard time believing God is good. So I ask myself, what does God teach us about his plan for helping the world to know he's good? And he reveals that plan to his followers, that would be us, in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they would see your good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. Now notice it doesn't say you could be the light of the world or you might be the light of the world or I sure hope you people turn out to be the light of the world. It simply says you are it. Now I know this is an intelligent crowd here this morning and you might want to say to God, you know, God, no ideas are bad and we're just brainstorming here, God. But that's a bad plan. You might want to get a plan B. But the fact is, there is no plan B. This is God's plan for letting a hurting world know that he's good. The Apostle Paul reinforces this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.20 where he says, God is making his appeal to the world through us. So serious followers of Jesus have taken these verses to heart. And over these past millenniums, We've tried to help a hurting world know that God is good so that when people are suffering because they don't know about the salvation story, that we can have a personal relationship with Jesus. What do we do? We send evangelists. We plant churches. We translate the scriptures. We train up Christian leaders who can go out and proclaim the word of God. And when people are hungry, we share our food and we teach them to grow crops when they're sick. We share our medicines and our doctors. When there's a microbe in the water, we build clean water wells. When they lack education, we build schools and train teachers. And in doing all these things, we make it believable to a hurting world that our God is good. 
But there's another category of suffering that doesn't happen because people have not heard the gospel or because there's a microbe in the water or they lack education or medicine. These are the victims of a man-made sort of suffering in our world that happens when an oppressor comes on the scene. These are the victims of violent injustice in our world. Now, I think when I talk about this term injustice here in Oak Brook this morning, here in America, I think it can just be a throwaway term, can't it? I mean, first of all, for so many of us, injustice is just so far from our experience of life. Yet, don't we here in America like, feel like we're victims of injustice every day all the time? I mean, for instance, uh, my wife is a school teacher, and every Wednesday she's a reading teacher, so she makes about 200 brownies so that she can use them with her little reading groups at the school. And so I have this commute. I'm tired. It's been a long day. And she calls me on the phone and says, Larry, could you stop at the grocery store and just pick up these eggs for me? So I say, all right, but I'm in a hurry. I'm tired. And so I get the eggs and I go to the express lane. These things have rules, right? (laughs) Mine clearly says 10 items or less. But I'm not kidding you. Right in front of me, 14 items. And I am so upset. And this is a great injustice. And I work with all these lawyers at International Justice Mission. And I could sue the guy. And I felt like it. (laughs) Just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is a particular kind of sin. It's when somebody who has more power abuses that power to take from someone with less power the good things that God wanted them to have, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their love and their labor. Ecclesiastes 4.1 says, Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them, but on the side of the oppressor was power. And in our psalm, we have these verses that you'll see on the screen that just talks about what oppression looked like in the time of King David. And I think I would have read those growing up in my Baptist Sunday school and thought, oh my goodness, I'm, that's pretty melodramatic and exaggerated. I'm sure glad I didn't live 3,000 years ago when things were so bad. But these past nine years, I've been working at International Justice Mission and I've just gotten out and seen what really happens to the poor in our world. As you heard, International Justice Mission is about 13 years old. We're a collection of about 500 Christian lawyers, criminal investigators, government relations experts, trauma social workers. And what we do is we receive cases from Christian workers like those you met earlier who work among the poor and they see them just being crushed. And they send us these cases in the hopes that we can intervene and bring rescue. I think the best way for you to understand what injustice looks like is For me, just to introduce you to three of those people I've gotten to know while I've been at IJM. The first is a young girl named Shama from India who we met when she was about 10 years old. Something terrible had happened in her family just three years earlier. Her mother was about to give birth in their little rural Indian village, and it was clear she would die unless the doctor could come and help. But the doctor would only come if they had the equivalent of $35 to pay him. This poor family had never seen that much money in a lump sum, and the only way they could get it 
was to go to the village moneylender, and he would only give them the money if the family agreed to sell Shama to him to become a slave. So what you see in this smaller picture is how Shama spent her days, six days a week, 12 to 14 hours a day. She sits on that one place on the floor, and what she's doing is she's rolling cigarettes by hand. She has to roll 2,000 cigarettes every day, or she gets beaten. No time for school, no time for play, no time for friends, just a 15-minute break for lunch and back to work. And the trick is she only gets out of this slavery if she can pay it off in a lump sum with massive interest. So a few years later, she'll just forget the loan altogether because it's so great she knows that she'll be a slave the rest of her life and even pass the slave on to her children or children's children. How is Shama supposed to believe that God is good? Now, this is completely against the law in India, but how many slaves do you imagine there are like Shama in India alone? The United Nations tells us at least 14 million. Estimates range over 100 million of slaves worldwide. How are they, how is Shama supposed to believe in the goodness of God? Or what about a young man from Kenya named David? David was walking home from a video store when some policemen pulled up next to him on the street and they told him to get in the car. And then they said, give us what money you have or we're going to charge you with a crime and throw you in jail. Well, David knew he did not want to go to a Kenyan jail, so he took out all that he had, a little over $1.50 in Kenyan shillings. The policeman pulled over, and one policeman told David he could go, but the other one took out his revolver and just shot David twice, shot him in the right arm and in the side, and he simply collapsed in the street as the police drove away. In great agony and wet in his own blood, David was able to get himself up, and fortunately there was a medical clinic across the street, and he made his way there where he began to receive treatment. The bone in his right arm was so badly crushed that it had to be amputated. And when the police discovered that David was recovering, they came to the medical clinic and they charged him with a crime, robbery with violence, and they shackled him to the bed until he was well enough to be taken off to a Nairobi prison. How is David supposed to believe that God is good when those who were charged with his protection were actually his abusers? Recently, the World Bank did this study of the poor in 17 poor countries around the world, and they asked, what is your biggest source of insecurity? And shockingly, it came back overwhelmingly that it was the police who preyed upon the poor to augment their meager salaries. How are they? How is David supposed to know and believe in the goodness of God? Or what about Joy T, also from India? Joy T one day ran away from an abusive family situation. She was 14 years old, and she was in great despair at the local railway station when some women approached her and asked what was wrong, and she told them her story, and they said, well, Joy T, come to the city with us. We know a restaurant where you can work. And she said, I didn't really trust these women but I didn't know where else to turn, so reluctantly she agreed to go on the train with them. And sure enough, on her way there, she was given some tea that had been drugged. She fell unconscious, and when she awoke, she discovered that she'd been sold into a brothel for about $280.
She told the brothel keeper, you can't make me do this kind of work. I'm just 14 years old. I'm going to the police. But she never got the chance. She was beaten with metal rods and plastic pipes, electrical cords. She was forced to drink lots of alcohol and scald it until finally she agreed to be abused by customer after customer after abuser after abuser. Day in, day out, never allowed to get outside the walls of that brothel for year after year in a city with one of the worst HIV-AIDS problems in our world. How is Joy T. supposed to believe in the goodness of God? There are about two million Joy T.'s in our world today yearning to know the goodness of God. And I ask myself, how do I, as a follower of Jesus, how do you regard such suffering as this? And I think we answer that question by asking, well, how does our Heavenly Father regard such suffering? And we see the answer at the end of our psalm where it says in 17 and 18, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You see, we have the answer to that initial question. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. You see, Scripture is plain, and we could go on and on and on about this, but God hates injustice, and He wants it to stop. But it raises an interesting question, doesn't it? At least it does for me. If God hates injustice and He wants it to stop, what exactly is His plan for doing something about it? And again, God's Word is plain on this fact. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, a verse that many of us have memorized. He's told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but that you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. God is nice enough to give us this short list of three things that would please Him. And the very first thing on God's short list is that we would do justice. Or what about Isaiah 117? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, it couldn't be plainer that you and I, the church, is God's plan for helping those who suffer injustice believe that God is good. But if you're like me, this is just a little overwhelming. Like, what are we to do about taking on the corrupt police in the world? Or maybe as many as 100 million slaves or 2 million young girls stuck in brothels. You could just feel bolted to the pew and the heaviness of the despair you might feel at thinking you could take on that task. And it's in such times that I am encouraged by another story in the Scriptures where the followers of Jesus found themselves in precisely this same situation. Remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Jesus has gone off to this remote location, and for some reason, this huge crowd has followed him there, and they're eager for his teaching. So he obliges them, and he teaches and teaches and teaches, and as he's teaching, they eat through the food, and eventually the apostles come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, you better stop teaching and send the people home so they can get something to eat. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, no, 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 I want you to feed them. Well, 
I think it's interesting in Scripture, isn't it, how patient the apostles are with Jesus? Because they explain to Jesus what apparently he didn't understand. And they come to him and they say, well, you see, Jesus, there are 5,000 hungry people here, and it would take a half year's wages to feed them all, and we just don't have the cash on us, so back to you, Jesus. Now, isn't this precisely the same situation we find ourselves in? There's this huge need out there, and there's nothing unclear that Jesus wants his followers to take care of it. But we look at the size of the need and the resources we believe we have to bring to bear on it, and we think, oh, my goodness. It's a nice idea that you think so highly of us, Jesus, but back to you. But what does Jesus do in this situation? He simply asks two questions. Two questions I'd like you to ask yourselves today. The first question, what do you have? What do you have? And they look around, right, and they discover that they're not without any resources. They find this little boy with his sack lunch, five barley loaves and two fish. And this is what they put forward to address the need of feeding 5,000. Now, this is where the Apostle Andrew steps into the story. He must have had something like an advanced degree in public policy from University of Chicago because he says this. He says, what are these among so many? You see, this would be me. I've got graduate degrees, and I've taken math courses, and frankly, if you were as sophisticated as I am and you knew the history behind this struggle and the sociology of it all, you'd know there's really nothing for us to do but sit here in the paralysis of despair. But what does Jesus say? He simply asks, will you give it to me? What do you have, and will you give it to me? This is the point in the story where Jesus takes responsibility for the miracle. All he's asking from this little boy and all he's asking from you and from me is that we come forward in obedience with what we've already been given and trust it back to him for the miracle that we know he yearns to do. And what does he do? He feeds 5,000 hungry people. I can tell you today that Shama's no longer a slave. It was nine years ago that we sent a team of lawyers over to India to, to look into this. We had never heard of anyone successfully taking on this kind of slavery and offering any real genuine help. So we showed up in this little rural village, and we were able to document Shama's case and 10 other cases. And in the process, we uncovered this huge syndicate of other children who were likewise enslaved. We took the 11 documented cases to the local courts, and we made an appointment to see the judge the following Monday. So all weekend long, our team was just praying and praying and praying that God would bless this little lunch of a report that we had brought forward. And one of our team members had this crazy idea that we should go find some local Christians to pray with. So we searched out this little of the church in the middle of nowhere South India, and we went to pray at that church on a Sunday night. And who should turn out to be the guest preacher at that church that night? The judge. <laughs> Turns out the judge is a sincere follower of Jesus. 
cared deeply about these children. He didn't just free the 11. He freed 494 children out of slavery into freedom and back into school and the hope of a better life, got promoted in his job so that he helped IJM in years following to rescue thousands and thousands of other slaves. And, of course, all this happened because everyone at International Justice Missions an absolute genius. I mean, did we have a plan or what? No, what we have is a God of justice who's just yearning for the world to know his goodness if his people would just show up with a little bit of obedience and trust him for the miracle. Likewise, David is no longer in that Nairobi jail. David's actually just graduated from law school. And today he works to protect the rights of those in his slum community. But I can tell you who are awaiting their day in court, those who did harm to David when they abused their power. Similarly, Joy T. tells us that one day one of the women in the brothel told her about a God named Jesus who might help her in her desperation. For a young Hindu girl, it's no problem just to start chanting, Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus, and that's what she did. How does Jesus answer such a prayer as that? It turns out that that's what we got to be a part of. Because within a week of Joy T beginning to chant Jesus, an IJM investigator showed up, was able to hear her story and gather enough evidence that he could take it to a secure police contact who then led a raid of Joy T's brothel and got her out. Eventually, she went into Christian aftercare where she began to heal. And one day she heard we were going back into the dark places where she once suffered so. And she said, can I go? I want to be a rescuer. And that day she helped us rescue Kalindi and six other girls. And immediately Kalindi said, wait, wait, and let's roll the video. There was a tip-off. The police were in touch with us, and they took some of the younger girls away, and they're in a hiding place, and I know where that hiding place is. And what you're seeing in this video now are these younger girls, 13 to 16 and 17, and they're literally coming out of this hole in the ground, the darkness of the slavery they've experienced, into the light of freedom, into the hope of a better life. And all of this is possible because people like you helped IJM show up for Joy T, and Joy T showed up for Kalindi and Kalindi for these girls. Let me ask you this. Why do you think Jesus fed the 5,000 the way he did? Why didn't he just do that manna thing all over? You know, manna, poof, back to the teaching. So efficient. I think Jesus fed the 5,000 the way he did for one very specific reason. He wanted one little boy to have a very cool day. <laughs> think about it. Theologically, you all are well-trained enough to know that Jesus really didn't need that boy's lunch. But did he just love him so much? Did he just love him so much that he said, wait, wait, wait. Let me show you what I can do with your obedience today. Do we think that little boy will ever forget that day? But imagine, on the other hand, 
what a small and ordinary day he would have had if he'd have done the sensible thing and just taken his lunch behind a rock and eaten it by himself. And I think this morning that this is the lesson for us. You and I, we've been given so much more than five loaves and two fish. Yet all too often we do that sensible thing, which is the equivalent of taking what we've been given behind a rock and just keeping it for ourselves. When the experience that God wants to pour out on us of his presence his power and his pleasure is dependent on us taking what we've been given to those places in the world where the need exists for people to know his goodness. And that's what this mission festival is all about, isn't it? So that people would know God's goodness when they're alienated from him, to know his goodness when they don't have the bare essentials, to know his goodness when they need someone to restrain the hand of the oppressor. So it's my encouragement to you today as you consider this faith promise that you're about to do. What do you have and will you give it to him? Now, what does this all mean for Christ Church here in Oak Brook? Let me just say that we hope that you all go to our website, ijm.org, because we need your prayer. So every Thursday is a prayer email, and we want you to be praying for us. Uh, you can support the work of IJM not only through your church, but by online opportunities. You'll see you can just pay for this work. Some of you are going to come to work for us. Some of you are going to send your students to come be interns with IJM. So go to the website, and you'll see all about that. Some of you are going to want to pick up good news about injustice and other books you'll see referred to in your bulletin and just educate yourself biblically about the call to do justice and just how possible it is. But the one thing I want to ask you all to do, our offices are in Washington, D.C., and the reason our headquarters are there is occasionally we need to go speak to our country's lawmakers. And the conversation often goes like this. When we talk to them about modern-day slavery, they'll think, oh, that sounds awful. Something really should be done about this. And then they follow it with this. But that's not what the people back home care about. So we would ask you today to stop at our table and fill out one of these cards letting your senators know that the people of Christ Church Oak Brook care about stopping modern-day slavery. So if you would fill one of these out, for Dick Durbin or for Roland Burris or both of them, we would really appreciate it. And it'll just take about 15 seconds. Let me close by saying that uh, I joined a gym when I moved to Washington, D.C. about nine years ago, and I made a mistake because the gym I joined is like 100% full of bodybuilders. Needless to say, they make me feel rather out of place. But nonetheless, I show up occasionally, and I walk on the treadmill. And in, in my kind of mindless walk on the treadmill, I'm taken by these bodybuilders who have muscles everywhere. I mean, their earlobes have muscles, I think. <laughs> and so I'm doing, like, this very non-impressive thing on the treadmill, and I'm looking over at all these these powerful bodies, right? I mean, huge necks and arms and legs and chest. And I look at all that power and strength and muscle mass, and 
I ask myself, what's it all for? And you know what it's for. It's for posing. And the only time all that power and all that strength comes to any, like, real use is there's, like, a crisis in the kitchen, and the jam jar is stuck, and they pop open the jam jar. (laughs) So this is my prayer for us today, that in a world yearning to know the goodness of God, that God would rescue us from all things petty, all things fearful, all things trivial and small, so that we could move out into these things that truly matter to our God and get beyond trivial things like opening jam jars.